Thanks for taking 2022 over the top. I'm glad to say that our Historians Podcast Fund Drive has exceeded its 2022 goal. You can uh, always uh, add some more by going to the link on our website, bobcudmore.com, which takes you to our uh, GoFundMe page. And you'll also find on our website instructions on how you can uh, send us a donation by mail. And thank you very much. Hi, this is Buddy Levy, the author of Empire of Ice and Stone. It's an Arctic story. I like to say uh, it's an Arctic disaster narrative, uh, as if there were another kind up there. It's set in uh, 1913, uh, the Canadian Arctic Expedition. And it's a story, of, essentially, of two men, of uh, Williamer Stephenson, the expedition leader, and Captain Bob Bartlett, who was uh, hired to lead uh, or hired to captain the ship, the Carluck. And it ends up being a story of disaster and terror and sometime joy on the frozen seas of shipwreck and mutiny, frostbite, possible murder, privation and starvation, and ultimately a dramatic rescue attempt in one of the harshest places on earth. This is the Historians Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is uh, Buddy Levy. We, we talked with him a couple of years ago about a previous book also about the Arctic, right? It was called Labyrinth of Ice. Yeah, listen, I can't seem to get off the ice. Labyrinth of Ice was about the ill-fated Greeley expedition in 1881 and 1884, and I leap forward a couple decades to uh, another remarkable tale called Empire of Ice and Stone uh, about the uh, Canadian Arctic expedition of 1913, and um, I just can't get enough of these Arctic explorations. Why would, I mean, this is some decades after the first uh, Arctic expedition you mentioned. I mean, what do they see up there? I mean, what? why do people keep going back to that dangerous place? The rationale and the reasons have, have sort of shifted uh, by this time. But, you know, a lot of these expeditions initially were going for first. You know, they, there was a great unknown uh, in the Greeley expedition. No one had yet been to the North Pole, so... People were there was also also all sorts of uh, mythology about you know what was up there. Certain people believed that uh, you know the North Pole was ringed by ice, and then if you broke through that ice ring, there was a tropical paradise up there. Um, of course, that was dispelled around the time of this story. To place it in some context, uh, Robert Peary had uh, claimed the North Pole in 1909, and so. All of these uh, explorations that had been driven by attempts to become the first to do something, say the first to make it through the Northwest Passage or the first to reach the North Pole, mm-hmm. had shifted to become scientific in nature. And I would talk a little bit, uh, if, if we can, uh, about Bob Bartlett, the captain's relationship to Peary. But just in, in thumbnail sketch, you know, there they were still... Uh, so a degree of unknown, there was a belief that there was uh, undiscovered land and undiscovered peoples above Alaska and Canada. So that was what was driving some of these uh, expeditions. Well, tell us about um, your current captain and uh, was it Robert Perry, the explorer? Robert Perry is really becomes really famous for being the first to make it to the North Pole. And the thing that very few people know and I have, I have to say, I did not know this until I started researching the book. Captain Bartlett was the 
one of the world's most renowned ice masters and ice navigators. And Peary had brought him along on the SS Roosevelt, this uh, remarkable 1,000 horsepower steel-hulled icebreaker ship up to the north, to, to the top of Ellesmere Island, and then Bartlett had been his captain, and Bartlett had gone with him on snowshoe and foot and dog sled to within 150 miles of the North Pole. Um, and this is in 1909. And when they made it that far, Bartlett was asked by Perry to go back to the Roosevelt. He said, you know, you've done, you've led us here. And Bartlett had led the pioneering party that set up the igloos and got them to that point. Um, but he wanted, Perry wanted to take this uh, other man on the team named Matthew Henson. And so Bartlett, as a, a dutiful mariner and, um, and captain, did what he was asked. Um, but he was essentially, he says, you know, I was, I was so close. I was with 150 miles of, uh, of polar immortality. And it ends up being a really um, dubious decision on Perry's part because uh, Bartlett was excellent with a sextant and being able to determine locations in their reading and, and reading where they were. And so, but Matthew Henson was the better dog driver and sled dog driver. And so when Perry comes back, uh, it, his claim of the North Pole ends up being contested and is contested to this day. And had he had he brought Bartlett along, he might have uh, saved himself mm. a lot of headache and controversy. And, and wasn't Henson an African-American also? That's true. And, you know, a couple of the, the other members of the of the advanced team were um, Inupiat or uh, Inuit people. So um, but it isn't exactly clear. Uh, Perry never says exactly why. He, he sent Bartlett back. Um, and, you know, Bartlett talks about it in his own book um, that he wrote later. And, you know, um, he, he was disappointed, but he, he still stands by Perry. Uh, um, and he did to, to, the, to uh, the end of his life. He stood by Perry. Well, let's go back to the, what you're writing about in the current book about the uh, Brigantine Carlook. Uh, which is uh, on the Canadian Arctic Expedition, 1913. Just sort of a general go-around, find, find what you can in the Arctic? They're, they're trying to go um, up above northern Canada, Canada and Alaska to find new lands and to, to you know do anthropological and, and ethnological and oceanographic study. Um, but the thing about this story that I find really remarkable is that, you know, they started in Esquimalt, British Columbia, and worked their way up through the Bering Strait and up to uh, northern Alaska, where quite early Bartlett determines that the ship is not really suited for the task, that ta the ship is a, is a converted, like, 30-year-old whaling vessel, um, which Stephenson, the expedition leader, has purchased at a pretty low price because the whaling industry was in decline at the time. And so Bartlett looks at the ship and it's, um, you know, it reeks of whale oil and uh, he doesn't, the engine, the, the first engineer uh, says that the engine has about as much power as an old coffee pot. And <laughs> okay. the, the uh, you know, Bartlett has to have it um repairs done um, in, in northern Alaska before he's willing to set out into the, the higher seas. And 
there's a lot of other stuff going on too. Um, Stephenson has has two other ships, um, the Alaska and the Mary Sachs, and the plan is to take all three of these ships over the top of uh, Alaska at Point Barrow and then head due west, uh, or pardon me, due east, um, toward this small island uh, over above Canada called Herschel Island. And at that point, they're going to uh, the plan is to re organize all the equipment because he's got 16 scientists from around the world and thousands of pounds of gear. And, um, there are two parties, the Northern and the Southern party. And the plan is to like convene, uh, at Herschel Island and get it all together. Um, the problem is <laughs> in the Arctic, um, the, the weather, the currents and the, uh, and the winds and snows and the ice determine what's actually going to happen. So very early on in their, voyage heading toward Herschel Island, a massive storm hits and blows it all to smithereens, essentially. And the uh, project leader, or the leader of the expedition, as opposed to the captain of the ship, uh, who's the man you have been talking about, uh, tell us some more about uh, what Wilhelmur Stephenson. Right. So Williamur Stephenson is an interesting character. He's very smart. Um, and he had, he had, uh, he had just returned. He's an Icelandic American, but he was actually born in, in Canada and he went to college in North Dakota and Iowa and then over in Harvard at Harvard. And, um, but he, he became interested in, uh, Arctic exploration and he had, he had just come back from four years living among, um, the Inuit people above, uh, in Alaska and North and Canada. And so he, he quickly wanted to, put together another expedition even more bold and audacious and he was a very he was kind of a, a showman a kind of uh, impresario if you will he was really um, persuasive so he was able to um, you know these these were costly ventures and so he when he came back from four years in the arctic he uh, he started he went to the american museum of natural history and to the canadian government and he said i think you know there are undiscovered peoples uh, and new lands to find, and um, he convinced everyone to finance this grand venture, uh, which he put together very quickly, and I think that ends up being part of the problem. And then sends a telegram to Bartlett and asks if he will be the captain, and Bartlett arrives, and within, you know, a couple weeks, they're off. In the empire of ice and stone, there's been a lot of coverage in the news about Canada's relationship with the native peoples uh, up there. And you've mentioned them uh, several times, the Inuit. Uh, what role do they play uh, in this story? They play a significant role in the story. And, you know, for all of uh, Stephenson's um, disorganization and some of his dubious choices uh, later that impact the expedition, he did one thing that was brilliant, which was when they rounded Point Barrow, he, he went ashore and he hired a hunter named Kuraluk, his wife named Kiruk, who goes, they nicknamed her Auntie. And their two children, Helen, who was 11, and uh, Mugpi, a little girl named uh, Mugpi, who was three. And they also hired another young hunter named Katak And it wasn't uncommon to bring families along. Um, they're very useful in many, many ways. And so um, Stephenson's plan was that uh, Kirik, or auntie, would sew Arctic clothing that everyone would need. You know, he bought 
um, tons and tons of skins of uh, reindeer hide and um, you know uh, other animal fur, and and so she was on the ship sewing um, pants and mucklucks and and mittens and parkas with hoods that they were all going to need, and then the hunters were going to be uh, used to drive the dog sled teams, to build igloos uh, on the sea ice, and to hunt, uh, you know, polar bear, arctic fox, seals. And so these, this family uh, and Kataktovic, I make the case, and with great confidence, that every one uh, of the Karluk shipwreck survivors uh, would have died without them. There were close relations between the... Uh, European descended people and the indigenous people, but there's a certain amount of mystery to it, wasn't there? I mean, they kept these, I don't know, relationships secret. One of the things that that Stephenson did, what right when he arrived uh, at the uh, at the port of Seattle in 1912, just before this expedition began, was he had this story that he had encountered uh, what who he was calling blonde Eskimos. He claimed. And he had heard this story from someone else, but he claimed that the the people he was encountering and wanted to go uh, back and study were blonde-haired, blue-eyed Eskimo people, and the Eskimo being the term used in the day, who were descendants of, of the Viking Eric the Red. Now, the news of the day really ate this up, and, and because it, you know they were uh, rampant for you know new new discoveries. And so Stephenson kind of used that um, story and that, that myth, if you will, uh, to garner interest in, in this new expedition. You know, I will say, though, that it was probably more likely that the, the people that um, he was talking about, you know, there had been a couple of hundred years of European integration in that area, and it was not uncommon for European explorers to, what they would say, uh, have in Inuit or Inupiat uh, families and and have children and so that that was that was happening you know for a couple of hundred years and in fact Stephenson I make this case because his decision to leave the Karlik which is probably the most controversial decision that he makes in this story at a certain point as they're drifting in ice you know he decides to disembark uh, and try to strike for land and um, one of my thoughts is that. He's doing this because he has a secret family that he hasn't told anyone about. This is the project leader. This is not Captain Bartlett. This is uh, Stephenson. Yeah, so they get they get encased in ice, uh, you know, six weeks after starting the trip. And the ship gets sort of surrounded by ice that, that essentially knits together around them and binds it so it can't go anywhere. And then and then the uh, Stephenson, they float for a while and uh, like a month and then Stephenson decides he says I'm going to go on a caribou hunt uh, he disembarks the ship with five um, scientists and uh, two of the other hunters uh, that he had brought along and um, heads for land and then the Carla gets blown toward the west and Stephenson gets stranded on an island and now Captain Bartlett uh, is in charge of the remaining uh, you know, 22 or 24 people who are still on the ship, including crew and scientists and 32 sled dogs and a small family. And Stephenson is no longer, he's now lost his flagship and he's uh, 
heading for land. This crew, this, well, I'm going to use the old cliche, this motley crew, you know, different from different cultures and so forth, they were able to talk to each other. I mean, they, right, they shared language or they understood each other's languages. Stephenson also brought along a man that he um, had known for years named John Hadley. And he, he, was, uh, he had lived in, in northern Alaska and, and spoke some of the uh, languages and dialects of the region. And um, a number of the hunters who, um, and, and the, and the uh, family also had been living in Alaska for a long time. And so they had interaction with, um, you know, fur traders and trappers and traders up there. So there was a kind of, um, you know, composite mixed language that people were speaking. Uh, I will say that a couple of the scientists who were on the ship um, spent a great deal of time. They actually, um, because they were floating for a number of months after um, they got separated and they were, they're heading out to the Arctic ocean, um, encased in ice in this mile square ice flow. Um, and, and they, so they started having evening, uh, language lessons and exchanging language and having conversations so that they were each learning the other's language. It was really innovative and, and smart actually. What happened to this expedition? I mean, in these people, it, it seems like this couldn't end well. <laughs> No, I like to say when people ask me what I'm writing about, I say, "Oh, it's an it's an Arctic disaster narrative, as if there's another kind." Um, <laughs> but you know, so I, you really the the story. It's funny because so um, when when Bartlett and Stephenson become separated and the ship is careening out toward the northwest, that's really when the story uh, picks up a great deal of of momentum. Because what happens is. Um, one thing is there's Bartlett and a number of the other members, scientific members uh, of the Carluck, uh, have on board, you know, a library of Arctic literature. And there is a previous expedition of the Jeanette that had made, been encased in ice and floated in almost the identical direction. And so there's this looming, foreboding, ominous quality to the notion that because the, the Jeanette does ends in in great tragedy and they all know it so they're reading about where they're headed and um so what ends up happening though is that on the ship they're able to they're able to disembark um sometimes the ice conditions are um suitable to go off the ship and and you know ski around and uh explore a bit um but the idea is so what i do is i cut back and forth between what's happening to the members of the carluck as they're drifting and what is happening to Stephenson as he finally makes it back to land and makes some decisions about what he's going to do. Um, and, the, and he ends up not doing very much at all uh, about the Carluck, because in his mind, um, until summer, the next summer, I mean, this is, this is September, October, November, until the next summer when the ice breaks up, there's nothing to do about the, the ship. And in that respect, he's correct. But, we spend our time with the Carluck and we're on the ship as they're drifting out into the abyss. And, and I will say that, you know, the lands, the seascape out there is, it's not flat and just a smooth ice sheen, you know, it is incredibly ruptured and hummocked giant moving flows, 15 and 20 miles long um, that are, 
shifting with current and wind and constantly bashing into one another and, and also impinging and encroaching on the sides of the Carluck. And so there, you know, the chip ultimately gets crushed. And then Bartlett has to make some really hard decisions about um, where to go uh, and what to do and how this is all going to end. How does it end? I mean, what happens to this to this ship? Does anybody survive this? Boy, you don't mind spoilers at all, Bob, do you? Listen, so what ends up happening is the ship gets crushed. They make a... Bartlett is really smart because he has he's told everyone to put thousands of pounds of gear and all the dogs and food out onto the ice. And there's a there's a relatively safe, flat area a few hundred yards from the ship. And then the ship gets crushed, and they they watch it go down. And then there's, you know, 22 men, couple, you know, 30 dogs, and uh, an Inuit family standing on the ice. And, and then there there becomes an incredibly dramatic uh, attempt to make it over to this landmass called Wrangell Island, which is just above northern Siberia. And um, so this ordeal begins where Bartlett is leading in small teams. Uh, all of the members t- toward this island to hopefully make it there. and But it's, like I said, it's not flat. So they encounter these giant raised pressure ridges of ice up to 100 feet tall, and they make it there. Some of them make it there, I will say. Um, not all. And then Bartlett has to make a decision about, because they're in very poor condition once they make it to this place called Wrangell Island. And Bartlett knows that the only way everyone, anyone is going to survive is if he and Katatovic, the other Inuit hunter, strike south toward, across the long strait toward Siberia, get across that ice, make it about 700 miles total to um, the point of eastern Siberia, and then get across the Bering Strait make it to Alaska again and tell news to the world that the members of the Carlick are still, some of the members of the Carlick remain stranded, marooned on Wrangell Island. So eventually some of the m- members are, are rescued or is there such a thing as rescue up there? What I will say, yeah. So, you know, it's, you mentioned the, the Greeley expedition. It's really interesting. One of the ships that was part of the rescue attempt of the uh, Greeley expedition in my book, Labyrinth of Ice, um, is also brought to bear. It's called the bear. Funny. And in it, it, it's, uh, it was enlisted to try to um, go get the members that are stranded. So what happens is, you know, in that time of um, 1913, the ice surrounding Wrangell Island is only open enough to navigate, you know, maybe six weeks of the year. And even then, it's questionable about whether a ship can make it. So because the ice is always moving and, and filling in. And and so there ends up being a, a, a free ship rescue attempt on the members of Wrangell Island. And we and the reader move back and forth between the dire conditions, the essentially starvation conditions that are happening as the members on Wrangell Island are trying to um, eke their way out by eating seals and walrus and Arctic fox, and then moving back and forth between uh, what's happening with this rescue attempt and whether the ships will actually be able to make it to them. So it's Mm. very dramatic. 
dramatic in you know in the final chapters. You're, you're you never know whether they're going to make it or not. Buddy Levy with us. Uh, his book is Empire of Ice and Stone: The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carluk by Buddy Levy. You have an obvious passion for this kind of story and this part of the world. Uh, have you ever been there yourself? Yeah, I have. So I was um, fortunate enough to go to um, Greenland in 2003, and I was uh, working as a journalist covering this wild adventure racing sport. Uh, and it's actually there when I was in Greenland that I met a Norwegian woman who gave me a book about her countryman, who's this famous explorer named Fritjof Nansen. When I started, and also I will say that um, my, my father was a Nordic uh, ski racer and in, competed in the Olympics and so uh, in Nordic skiing. And so I grew up in a ski town and have always been, the Norwegians pioneered skiing and, and as a mode of travel. And so I was always really sort of intrigued by the, um, the high north and the frozen Arctic seas. When I was in Greenland, it's where it really took hold within me. I mean, I just love, it was so dramatic and so beautiful and the ice, you know, at once uh, terrifying and, and pristinely gorgeous. And so I started doing uh, research about Arctic exploration when I got handed this book. And, and uh, we, I was in Greenland for about three weeks. And so it, it had a tremendous, profound impact on me uh, just being there. Maybe I brought this up with you last time. I usually probably would. I live in the Schenectady, New York area, and we have an Air National Guard base that specializes in polar flights, the South Pole, but also up to Greenland, to the um, radar stations or whatever defense installations uh, America has up there. Is that who's primarily up there, or is it a real country, or do people live there? Well, in Greenland is is uh, yeah, it is um, the the dominion of the of Denmark. The, there have been Inuit um, peoples there for, for a really long time. You know what's interesting about the Empire of Ice and Stone, the book that um, that we're talking about now, is that Wrangell Island was uninhabited, and but it had you know the in the in the expedition. Um, the plan was if you find uninhabited land to plant the flag for Canada and then claim it, essentially. But, you know, and, which they do, which they do when they land on, on uh, Wrangell Island, they claim it. But there's no, there are no inhabitants other than polar bears and walrus. And Wrangell Island is really fascinating. Um, you know, it's, now it's Russian-held um, territory. And it, one of the things that was really unfortunate for me was that I had two, two planned trips to go to Wrangell Island. And the first was um, scuttled by the pandemic, and uh, the second one was scuttled because of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So uh, it's sitting there with about one or two permanent residents, and, and Wrangell Island is now a, a UNESCO World Protected Wildlife Site. And it, it's just a, an amazing place that I will go to eventually. Buddy Levy is author of Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carluk, uh, which was a Canadian Arctic uh, exploration. Thank you very much, Buddy, for joining us, and you have a good day. Hey, Bob, you too. I really appreciate you having me on. Buddy Levy is author of Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage 
of the Car Look. It's a book published by St. Martin's Press. The New York Times Review said, quote, Levy writes beautifully about the cold. His passion for this alien landscape is infectious, something to appreciate from underneath a pile of blankets while wearing very warm socks. Buddy Levy lives in Idaho. He's become a go-to author for Arctic history. Empire of Ice and Stone is an immersive history about the doomed 1913 Canadian Arctic expedition. Levy details how consequential leadership was uh, to these precarious expeditions, the vital role that indigenous peoples played in Arctic exploration, and the limits of human endurance in the harshest environments. To support the Historian's Podcast, please donate at our GoFundMe link on bobcutmore.com or send a check in the mail to 125 Horseman Drive, Bob Cutmore, in Scotia, New York, 12302. 